Welcome to the September 2013 episode of the Nature Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Ailey Dalgan. This month, a new way to track responses to drug therapy in brain cancer patients. You actually gain a wealth of information that tells things about the brain tissue and especially the vessels and the vessel architecture that we actually had no other methods of um, looking at it before. How the Global Health Council bounced back from the brink of oblivion. We are reimagining GHC as what it needs to be and reanimating it in a different way. Plus, the role of a critical metabolic regulator on the brain, the struggle to induce migraine aura in the laboratory, and a new target for both prion and Alzheimer's diseases. But first, a potential new weapon in the fight against tuberculosis. With the story, here's Nature Medicine News intern Liz Devitt. Multidrug resistance in tuberculosis patients is a problem that's not going away. The World Health Organization estimates that roughly 9 million people are newly infected with TB each year. Close to a million of these people have multidrug-resistant forms of the disease. This means that their infections don't respond to at least two commonly used first-line drugs. Even worse, roughly 5% of these problematic cases can be classified as extremely drug-resistant, meaning that backup medication that doctors usually save only for emergency situations don't work for these patients either. Clearly, new drug options are needed. Now, in a new report in Nature Medicine, an international team of researchers describes a new compound from a class of drugs known as imidazopyridine amides, or IPAs, that may drop the numbers in those daunting statistics. The compound, dubbed Q203, appears to block the bacteria's ability to convert oxygen into energy. In this way, Q203 inhibits the tuberculosis bacterium in a completely novel way. Kevin Peth is a microbiologist at the Institute Pasteur Korea who led this study. So they do something very unique that other compounds on the market cannot do. This compound in Q203 is able to inhibit a complex called the cytochrome BC1 in the bacteria. And this BC1 complex is required to produce energy in the form of ATP. So this complex is found in the membrane of the bacteria and is part of what we call the respiratory chain. So Q203, this class of compounds, by, by binding to the B1 complex, will inhibit ATP synthesis and, in a way, will suffocate the bacteria, but it's then unable to multiply and will slowly die. So essentially, Q203 pulls the plug on the energy of the cell. Absolutely, yes. It is absolutely what it does. And how did you find this drug? We, we developed a platform where we can screen tens of thousands of compounds every week against mycobacterium tuberculosis that is hiding inside macrophages. And using this unique assay, we could identify the heat molecule that led to free. So this isn't the first time that IPAs have been proposed as potential tuberculosis-fighting candidates. You're right, it's not the first time that the IPA series has been found, very few reports. But I would say that Q203 is the most optimized molecule uh, up to date. And there is no other you know, IPA derivative out there that is as active as this one. So if you want Q203 is very balanced, highly active against the bacteria, yet very safe. It sounds like the perfect candidate. Oh, I don't know if it's perfect yet. We have to see what happens in humans. But to what you have seen in, in a preclinical uh, development, the compound is really, really well balanced. And, and we are really hopeful that it could be given to patients safely and without causing too much of a side effect. Liz there talking to Kevin Peth. Now, Q203 still has a long way to go before it reaches human clinical trials. 
but one drug already in clinical testing is FGF21. FGF21 is a potent hormone released by the liver that can reduce blood sugar and fat levels. It's being actively tested now for the treatment of obesity and diabetes. However, FGF21's actions are not limited only to peripheral organs. The hormone can readily cross the blood-brain barrier, and once inside the brain, it can act on a structure known as the suprachiasmatic nucleus, a tiny region on the brain's midline that affects the body's internal clock. As David Mangelsdorf and Stephen Cleaver from the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center report, FGF21 works from inside the circadian command center in the brain to further regulate whole-body metabolism and to modulate female reproduction in mice. According to Mangelsdorf, these effects must now be taken into consideration as drug development progresses further. I think what our study demonstrates is that one has to pay attention to what's happening in the brain and whether these drugs are crossing the blood-brain barrier and whether the negative effects need to be explored in more detail. Since these new findings all come from rodent studies, Mangelsdorf urges the research community to now investigate whether the same is true in people. Now, in the clinical trials, one needs to go back and find out if FGF21 is going to have these same effects in humans. Even if those effects do manifest themselves, how serious are they? And can one design compounds that don't have those effects by not targeting the brain or not targeting the areas where FGF21 might have those effects? And I think that's the promise of the drug as well as the potential caveats to using it as a drug. David Mangelsdorf's two papers on FGF21 can be found in the September issue of Nature Medicine. Coming up, the Global Health Council reborn, but first, an aura of mystery. In the latest issue of the journal, we have a news feature I wrote about the quest to create a human model of migraine aura. You see, in order to study aura, you have to be able to trigger it. Because if you can trigger it, then you can put people under a brain scanner and then study the perceptual disturbance in action. Easier said than done. What follows now is a segment from Neuropod, a monthly neuroscience podcast from Nature, in which Nature's senior audio editor, Carrie Smith, interviewed me about the migraine story. It sounds like the least fun experiment ever. Step one, enroll in a neurology study. Step two, turn up to the lab. Step three, willingly try to induce the terrible head-splitting pain of a migraine. Step four, allow scientists to monitor your brain activity while it flips through a sequence of visual auras, often early warning signs for migraine, followed by the headache itself. In this way, scientists are trying to study the brain changes that accompany aura and migraine with the hope of pinpointing a cause and possible treatments. But it's not as easy as it sounds to induce the symptoms. That's what Nature Medicine's senior news editor Ailey Dolgin found out when he looked into this in a feature. Ailey joins me on the line from Boston. Now, first of all, what do scientists want to know about migraine and aura from, from this kind of study? For one thing what the heck aura is in the first place. Um, about 20 to 30% of people who get migraines have these perceptual disturbances, usually visual, but you can have all sorts of other sensory disturbances as well. So most researchers believe that it's caused by a phenomenon called cortical spreading depression. And, and this has been observed in animal studies when they implant electrodes on their brains and they see this slow wave of depolarization that travels across the brain. Um, the speed at which that wave propagates, a few millimeters per second, 
that's about the same speed that the hallmark symptoms of aura, the, the blurry vision that people get, it's about the same speed that that travels across people's field of view. So they think it's the same thing, but you, you can't implant electrodes on people's brains like you can with animals. So really what's needed is a, is a kind of trigger, something that you can reliably do to these people and then get the aura so that you can study it. And, and that's what Anders Hugard, a neurologist at the Danish Headache Center near Copenhagen, that's what he's looking for. And once he finds that, then he says, then the real science can start. If we find some way of reliably triggering aura, we could do all sorts of experiments, but it's so difficult to actually provoke the aura. And, that, and that's the problem, right, Ailey? It's just really hard to induce these auras and the migraines that follow them. That's right. Researchers have tried all sorts of different approaches, um, including a number of pharmacological agents. And, and while these drugs can cause migraines, they almost never actually provoke the preceding aura. The most famous example of actually a successful provocation of aura uh, came about 12 years ago from a lab here in my own backyard in Boston. A research team at the Massachusetts General Hospital identified a patient named Patrick, and he almost always experienced his aura after playing basketball. So they arranged with a nearby gym for Patrick and his wife to shoot hoops, and then after about an hour, they whisked him off to an, a functional MRI machine that they had next door at MGH. In uh, this way, they managed to watch the aura in action, twice in fact. And it did look consistent with that cortical spreading depression that I talked about before. But of course, you want to do way more studies than just this one guy in Patrick. So we need more people like him. Anders Hugart, the Danish neurologist I talked about before, basically tried to repeat the basketball experiment. He asked his study subjects what their trigger was. I actually spoke to one of those participants for my story, uh, a young man from Copenhagen named Tobias Stermose, or Toby as his friends call him. He had been an avid track runner in high school, but then these migraines, migraines with aura, they basically derailed his athletic career because the physical exertion led to these auras and, and he had to stop. Now he says he mostly just avoids strenuous exercise. I can bike to school, I can walk uh, long trips with, without a problem. It's like a certain point in the heart rate. If I reach that, I know I'm in like danger zone and uh, I have a, a greater chance of uh, getting the aura and the migraine. So usually whatever I do, I keep the activity level under control or low enough to not reach that sort of heart rate. That was Toby speaking there. So, so what happened when Toby tried in this way to induce a migraine as he did for Hugard's study? <laughs> not much, actually. Uh, he really gave it all he had. He ran upstairs. He rode an exercise bicycle in full rain gear. And then the, the researchers flashed a strobe light in his face. Yet this was the result. Um, it was uh, it was pretty sweaty, but it uh, didn't trigger any uh, auras. So failing really punishing exercise or other people's individual triggers, what are some other ways in which researchers might hope to trigger migraines? Okay, so, so drugs don't work. Uh, natural triggers like the one that Toby tried, they don't work. Um, I won't bore you with the laundry list of other failed attempts. But Hugard and his team, they do have another idea up their sleeve, hypoxia. As Anders Hugard explains, they're basically just trying to make people have less oxygen in their bloodstreams. 
we are exposing patients to um, inhaled gas with a low level of oxygen, we hypothesized that this could trigger aura. It's surprising they have any volunteers at all for this study. It sounds hellish. Why would they want to study this? There are some things that suggest hypoxia could be a potential aura trigger. Um, For one thing, mountain climbers, who are often at high altitudes, breathing very thin air, they suffer something called acute mountain sickness. And that has many of the same hallmark features as migraine. And then on a, on a mechanistic level, in, from animal studies, we know that short-term drops in oxygen levels in neuronal tissue, that can lead to cortical spreading depression. So there's a, there's a real reason to think that dropping oxygen in, in study subjects might be a way to reliably get them to experience their aura. So all of this, of course, is aiming towards finding better treatments for aura and migraine. What exists right now and, and what are scientists hoping they might be able to make? Not all that much, not for treating aura at least. People who have migraines with aura, they basically take the same kind of medicines that anyone with migraine takes. Um, And the hope would be that if we can better understand this phenomenon, then maybe they would be able to design drugs specifically to treat this symptom and then hopefully stop the ensuing migraine from happening at all. All right. Well, we sincerely hope that uh, the sound of our voices hasn't provoked any migraines in listeners. Listeners can find out more about migraine and aura in Ailey's feature. That's out in the September issue of Nature Medicine, nature.com slash nature medicine. Carrie Smith there speaking with me on Neuropod. And you can find more of Carrie's audio prowess on the Neuropod and Nature podcasts. We'll link to each of those on our website, nature.com slash nature medicine. Still to come... I was adjusting the coils, and then soon we go. This is the Nature Medicine Podcast. On the surface of things, prion disease and Alzheimer's disease might seem like very different beasts. After all, one involves misfolded proteins called prions, while the other is driven by too much of a protein fragment called amyloid beta. However, both diseases share one important common feature. In both diseases, the pathogenic proteins at the heart of the problem build up in the brain to form sticky plaques. And in both diseases, the accumulation of these problematic proteins can be prevented by the activity of a family of enzymes known as alpha-secretases. So the thinking goes boost alpha-secretase activity, and you might be able to prevent or halt disease progression. All you need is a target. Well, a team of researchers in France may now have found one. As they report this month in Nature Medicine, inhibiting a kinase enzyme called PDK1 can increase the alpha-secretase activity of another enzyme known as TACE. It's a somewhat complicated pathway, complete with several different and confusing acronyms that are hard to keep straight, so to better understand the research, I spoke with Nature Medicine's senior editor, Kevin De Silva. What the paper finds is that the specific enzyme that is protective is called TACE. Um, its activity is down, and the reason it's down is because there's an, a kinase, which is um, phosphorylating it and not modifying its activity. And so the target in this paper is this enzyme, so that if you inhibit the enzyme, all of a sudden you boost this TACE activity, and then this results in cleavage of the protein such that the toxic species are not generated. Okay, so let me make sure I understand this pathway right. So you've got this kinase. This is the PDK1 that they report in the paper? Right. 
So this kinase has elevated activity in the disease, and that's driving down the expression of TACE. And TACE is your alpha-secretase that is protective, and thus, in its absence, you get disease. Indeed. And it, it's a little more complicated because what, what PDK1 is actually doing is it's taking um, TACE and internalizing it. So if you can inhibit PDK1, uh, TACE goes back to the plasma membrane, and then it can be active. <laughs> when is it not more complicated? So there's kind of a shuttling. But, but ultimately, what's important is PDK1, bad, tastes good. Indeed. And you have the opposite in these diseases. So how do they go about trying to knock down the PDK1 and in turn increase the taste, increase the, the alpha-secretase? Well, they do it in kind of complementary ways. One is they, they knock it down using a silencing approach, so siRNA, and find that in both cases in uh, infected mice with prions or in mice, uh, three models of Alzheimer's disease, uh, that it can improve memory impairments in Alzheimer's disease and drive down the pathology. And in prion disease, it um, reduces motor impairment and it extends survival. And in both cases, they also have this compound, like a small molecule that inhibits PDK1 activity. And in both cases, if you uh, give the drug to animals, it's protective in prion and Alzheimer's disease. So that's in animals. From everything I know about drug development, you said kinase. Kinase is like the magic word. That means druggable. And they've got a drug that works in animals. Can we now give this drug to people and test it in clinical trials? Well, some of the preliminary data from the work contained here suggests that the drug is somewhat toxic. So it's obviously going to require a bit more drug development. But in terms of its relevance to humans and whether this is a relevant pathway for for clinical development, uh, there is evidence in this paper that PDK1 activity is elevated in Alzheimer's disease, and then you see the kind of attendant changes in taste processing. So it suggests that this is a relevant pathway to human disease. Kevin De Silva, Keeping with the brain, a paper in this month's Nature Medicine describes a new twist on the brain scanning technique known as magnetic resonance imaging, or MRI. In this new system, Researchers from the Massachusetts General Hospital combined two types of imaging methods to peer deep into the vascular structure of the old noggin. Using the new approach, they could distinguish among small arteries, veins, and capillaries. They could determine the size of these blood vessels, and they could show how much oxygen was traveling through each one. In this way, they could even identify whether or not patients with brain tumors were responding to drug therapy. To see the technique in action, I headed down to the MGH Imaging Center, located in the Boston neighborhood of Charlestown, where I met up with study author Ronald Bora. Welcome to the Martino Center for um, Biomedical Imaging in uh, Charlestown, a part of uh, MGH uh, research, a big facility with uh, multiple uh, MR scanners, different field strengths, and we're um, dedicated to doing very advanced imaging on different levels. So we are entering now one of our uh, imaging bays, and uh, this is one of the bays where the research was done for our uh, recent paper on uh, vessel architectural imaging. Uh, we use a 3-Tesla MRI scanner, which is uh, quite a strong field, but it's becoming uh, commonplace nowadays for um, patient imaging. But now this isn't just any old MRI machine. You guys have souped this thing up, so can you tell me about the, the special tweaks you've made? So the, the regular thing is that you inject a contrast agent, you image the brain, and you get one contrast. Um, what we did is that while we are doing this every 1.3 seconds, we get two images of the brain. 
One is called a gradient echo image, and one a spin echo image. And those terms in itself are not so uh, important right now. The important thing is that they both look at different things, and they're obtained almost at the same time, only 70 milliseconds in between, so a very short time, so virtually at the same time. And they both look at different things, and, uh, and the whole bottom line of our new research is that if you do that, and we were able to acquire that data, and you analyze the differences between those two images in a smart way, then you actually gain a wealth of information that tells things about the brain tissue and especially the vessels and the vessel architecture that we actually had no other method of um, looking at it before. Uh, if you'd like, we can go inside and I can show you uh, how much room the patient has and, uh, and what it looks like. All right. I'll put my recorder down for a second and uh, come right back. We're back out now after having set up a scan with our two-foot-long bottle of water, but uh, that, that works as a stand-in, I guess? Correct. We have, a, we have a phantom inside the MRI coil, in the head coil, and we're back in the control room, and, uh, and we're ready to start the scan of our virtual patient here. You see it takes uh, two minutes, 41 seconds. Let's go. Yeah, let's go. And we have the injector uh, ready with both the contrast agent and a saline flush. And uh, we'll first um, acquire a, a baseline around eight seconds, and then, then we go. So before the scan is starting, the machine is optimizing the magnetic field. It's called shimming because we want it to be extremely homogeneous in the area where we're obtaining the data. The more homogeneous, the better the quality. Now it's adjusting the coils, and then soon we go. So after, there you see the images popping up real time. Hi, podcast listeners. Ailey here, back in the studio. I'm not going to subject you to two minutes and 41 seconds of this, so let's just fast forward to the end of the scan. All right, and so here's the, the data on the screen. So this is a bottle of water, um, but if this was a patient and we were trying to see you know, how that patient's doing, how that patient's responding to any sort of drugs... What would we see, and what, what did you see and that you're reporting in the paper? So if we would have a patient that would be responding uh, to the drugs and, and we have a baseline scan and a scan, for example, at 28 days, like in the paper, then in the, in the patients who would benefit from that therapy, we um, could see a, a change in flow, for example, an improvement in, in the flow in addition to the, a reduction in, in tumor size and a, a change in the oxy, relative oxygen saturation within the tumor. And that's like something really new that this uh, technique can bring in, in a very short amount of time. Ronald Bora. We end this month now with the health organization in need of a checkup. I'm talking about the Global Health Council, which last year came this close to shuttering its doors for good. Nature Medicine's Roxanne Kamsey tells the story of how a decades-old fixture of the global health community has managed to reinvent itself. 
For 40 years, the Global Health Council has connected representatives from leading medical institutions, research collaboratives, and some of the world's largest pharmaceutical firms. It's all in the name of building stronger networks in the global health community and advocating for this cause in places such as Capitol Hill. But in April of last year, a series of announcements from the nonprofit revealed that its own health was ailing. First, it was made known that the GHC would not be hosting its flagship annual event, the International Conference on Global Health. Shortly afterward, the organization sent shockwaves around the community when it said it would be closing its doors in a few months. This news sprang Jonathan Quick and other longtime members of the GHC into action. Quick, a family physician who also heads the Massachusetts-based nonprofit Management Sciences for Health, lived up to his surname and swiftly helped organize a series of meetings in which a plan was hatched to bring the GHC back from the brink. In January, a new GHC board was elected with Quick at its helm, and over the last half year, the organization has reinvented itself as a leaner operation. I spoke with Quick for a Q&A in the September issue of Nature Medicine, and he started by taking me back to that fateful day last year when members of the GHC found out that the organization was planning on shutting its doors. And it really came as a surprise to the members when they got a, uh, an email you know, last April saying that it was going to be closing the doors. Was it at all to do with the fiscal climate? That was part of it. I mean, certainly the, the overall funding, but also shift of, of, um, of donor interests. Do you mean away from global health? No, within global health, um, a shift from wanting to fund things through a member organization like GHC to uh, uh, supporting specific advocacy efforts and advocacy groups. I see. So now that you guys are, um, there's this reformation, what would you say characterizes the difference in how it's being positioned? You know, is it this, is it, are you recreating what was there two years ago, or is there something substantially different? Okay, the fundamental principle is we are not creating what existed. We are reimagining GHC as what it needs to be and reanimating it in a different way. I mean, the reality is what you had was a what was in its peak at $8 million a year nonprofit that went bankrupt. I mean, in the end, that's what happened. The, the money was out. We had to start from scratch. So one difference is that it's a, a much leaner organization. That's functionally. Um, I think in terms of several of the core objectives are exactly the same, and that is to um, be a, a common voice for the global health community, to be able to carry the message to the Hill and to the administration on the value of global health and um, bringing together you know, real-world examples. So that's there. Um, the second is the, the exchange among members. So you've got um, a dozen roundtables where it's the Washington-based groups who have a focus on malaria or on maternal and child health or on health technologies. So these different coalitions don't have a common exchange point. And so we've, we, one of the things that we did in the startup was to convene them. So the GHC, it's looking like it's going to have roundtables and uh, facilitate access to meetings and, and network building for the members. Is it going to do the conference like it did in the past? Because that seemed to be like a big part of the organization. So, so back to this 
kind of two-lane approach that we said we're going to start with concrete things that members want, and we're going to do a thoughtful strategic plan that says, okay, we're in a different world, we're in a different resource setting, what do we most need? And and so that the process is going to answer kind of the, the um, we haven't gotten to the end of the process to say, you know, we will or won't have a conference, it will start this this time, and then there's still a, 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 um, a strategic planning process going on uh, with the board and, 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 and the members to, to answer some of those longer-term questions. Roxanne there talking with Jonathan Quick. Well, that's it for this episode of the Nature Medicine Podcast. As always, we'd love to hear what you thought about the program. You can email us at medicine at us.nature.com. We're also on Twitter and Facebook. Plus, you'll find links to everything you heard about on the show on our website, nature.com slash naturemedicine. Until next time, I'm Ailey Dolgan. Thanks for listening.